So this summer at Elmhurst CRC, we've been talking about idolatry, which sounds like such an old-fashioned, ancient world. Um, not just the ancient phenomenon, however, of worshiping gods and goddesses or making sacrifices and burnt offerings, but also observing that even modern, educated, suburban people, every human being who has ever lived on this side of the fall in this broken world, has the tendency to make an idol. Literally, our hearts, our brains, our minds, our spirits are nonstop factories of idols. Everyone has this temptation in every age of putting something or someone in front of God to be the center of their lives, possibly even the center of the universe. So we've had different messages on the whole array of things that present themselves as beautiful options that could be our idol. It could be busyness or achievement. Uh, it could be your internet image or your in-person image. It could be your job or your work. There's so many different things. It could be a group or a team. It could be a political party, whether you're on the red team or the blue team. It could be your favorite sports team. It could be your hockey team. It could be your favorite group to identify with. So many things that can have the primary place in our life. It could be an experience like compulsive shopping, compulsive interneting, pornography, adventure. You could put another person who isn't God at the center of your life and they probably won't complain about it. It could be a pet. I mean, really, it could. I know people with like a dozen dogs. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. Uh, it could be your partner. It could be your friend or the very most likely candidate of all the idols, your own self. Could I be an idolater? For sure. Yes, you could. It's in all of us. And if you're willing to admit that, I am standing right beside you, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, as a habitual idolater. Here's a simple test if you're wondering, seriously, Pastor Greg, I'm an idolater? Here's a way to check yourself. Whatever you first find yourself thinking about regularly in the morning when you get up, hmm, that could be the most important thing to you. Whatever you find yourself falling asleep to, turning over in your mind and heart, maybe either happily, maybe out of concern, what you spend the lion's share of your time and money on, quite possibly that's the most important thing in your life. If all of those things line up and point in the same direction, pretty clear sign that whatever that is is the most important thing in your life. Today's message, however, is not going to about any particular form of idolatry. We can all do every variety and version. It's within us. Here to start speaking about the antidotes to idolatry, to our particular American idolatries. Um, a wise person said years ago, idolatry is a temptation. There's no way to stop the birds of temptation from flying over your head. 
Okay? This is going to be true of all of our lives, like stuff goes through our brain, flies over in our hearts. What you can do as a person who is following Jesus is to stop from building a nest for the birds in your heart. So they're like, circle around. Here's a person somewhere where I can make a nice, cozy home. This is the temptation talking. Here's a person where I can make a nice, cozy home and stay here for a good long time. What I'm going to be preaching about these next three weeks are ways to keep the birds flying over and not from roosting in your spirit. The way we're going to describe this is that if you are actively engaged in a vital, lively, growing spiritual life that has three dimensions, that is the best preventative from keeping temptations and idolatries from taking root in your own life. Here's the three dimensions of an active spiritual life. Upward in worship toward God. Inward in spiritual depth and knowledge of God's word and spiritual practice and in community and spiritual friendships. And the third dimension is outward in reaching out, serving, and being part of the body of Christ that exists to serve the world. Those three dimensions, up, in, and out, if you are growing in those three ways, it has tremendous power to keep your own nonsense and the powers of evil from taking root in you. There's an amazing vision of what the upward dimension of worship looks like. In Colossians chapter 3, this is one of the books in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writing to what probably was like the, one of the healthiest churches in the early days of the church. And the Apostle Paul says this. This sounds an awful lot like a worship service. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Lord willing, when we come together on Sunday morning, when churches small and large all over planet Earth come together on the Sabbath day, these very things are happening. We're getting a dose of the Word of God. We're praying for one another. We're welcoming one another. We're growing in wisdom and knowledge. We hear psalms. We sing songs together that lift up our hearts and our affections to God that might not work the same way Monday through Saturday. Sounds like an awesome service. However... Worship is not limited to an hour or two hours or three hours on Sunday morning. The very next words that come out of Paul's pen are these. Would you read them together with me? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is contained by whatever in the sentence? Is your job contained in whatever? If you're a student, is your going to school contained in whatever? Is your internet shopping contained in whatever? Is your grocery shopping contained in whatever? Is the way you treat the grocery clerk contained in whatever? Is the way you play sports? It's everything. Paul is saying, here's the deal, Christians. Not only is worship when we get all together, 
every moment of every day, you have the invitation and the opportunity to overflow with gratitude so that every single slice of life can be part of your honoring God, worshiping him, and bringing glory to his name. Like, this is one of the things that make the Reformed Church a little uh, unique. We love to accent this word gratitude and to say everything, 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 whatever you are doing, it holds the potential to be an act of worship and honoring God. Everything. The walk you take this afternoon. If you take a nap, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a Sunday afternoon nap, especially if you're tired, because you'll wake up and love people better and be a happier person. Amen? Happy napping, one and all. So here's the thing. Not only do we individually tend toward idolatry rather than this beautiful picture of worship that I just read from the New Testament, but communities and groups of people can fall into systematic, systemic patterns of idolatry and anti-God behavior. You'd think that the Bible would be just full of beautiful, shining examples of people getting it right. It's not. If you've ever read the whole Bible, it's like one failure story after another of the people of God missing the point, doing the wrong thing, failing, God picking them up, dusting them off, forgiving them, and letting them try again. Stunningly, in the Old Testament, God raised up the nation of Israel. The whole point was that they would be a living example amongst the nations of the world to demonstrate what it was like to truly know God, to honor God, to be different kind of people, to be living different lives, to be a different sort of country. And Israel, time and time again, fell into idolatry. So much so that in the books that record the history of ancient Israel, by the time we get into the book of the second kings of Israel, chapter 17, God has exhausted all his options and is resorting to tough love. Which means God promised Israel that they would occupy the promised land. He is now going to remove them from the promised land so that they might finally wake up, smell the coffee, and realize that only God is God. Why did God remove his chosen people from the land he promised them? Listen to these words. They're from 2 Kings chapter 17. God did this because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, and they worshipped other gods. This is the thing that breaks God's heart more than anything. When we as God's people worship other gods, where we align our life, our affections, our dollars, our time, our dreams, our creativity, when we align all of those things, all those good gifts with something, some cause that is not God. I'm going to tell you three stories now. One about a lamb, one about a calf, and one about a snake. These all come from the Bible, 
And they will all illustrate, I think, at the end of the day, um, what there is to do about our penchant for idolatry. So God decided to choose a people for himself, the Israelites. In the old, old days, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. They built cities for Pharaoh. They built pyramids for Pharaoh. They did whatever Pharaoh wanted. They were slaves. They were the engine that drove the economy and progress of Egypt forward. After 400 years of slavery, after 400 years of prayer, of suffering, of crying out, God moved to rescue his people. He chose an unlikely candidate to be the human spokesperson for himself. God chose a man named Moses, who had been raised as a prince of Egypt, who had then lived 40 years out in the wilderness, in the desert, shepherding sheep. And after that 40-year school of the desert, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and told him that he was going to set his people free. Moses had some serious questions. Ultimately, he obeyed. Moses goes before Pharaoh. Moses goes to the very court that raised him and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, 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 10 times. No, no. Egypt suffers because Pharaoh says no. And the 10th and final way of suffering is that every home in Egypt that does not have the markings of the blood of an innocent lamb over its doorposts, every home that does not have that sign will lose the firstborn son of the household. I can't even comprehend this. But this happens. Every home in Egypt every home that heard the voice of God and actually paid attention to it, every home that killed an innocent lamb, ate it for dinner, marked its doorways and lintels with its blood, was passed over, and the very next day, they walked out as free people. Sometimes in the Old Testament, sacrifices of innocent animals are offered for the guilt of humanity. This is not what happens on the Passover, called the Passover because death literally passes over the houses that are marked. What happens on the night of the Passover is that the lamb becomes the sign and the symbol and the marker of the free people. Not the powerful people, not the successful people, not the Egyptians, but the free people. After Israel experienced the Passover, left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and went out into the same wilderness where Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years, wouldn't you hope that they would worship and then worship some more 
and be so thankful that God had answered their prayers after 400 years that they would not be able to stop themselves from singing and dancing and worshiping and finding new and creative ways to thank God. There were a few days of that. But in short order, because they're people just like us, the Israelites found so many things to complain about. On one occasion in the wilderness, Moses climbed a mountain to be in the presence of God and to directly hear the voice of God who is going to reveal his will. Ten commandments for how the people of God could pattern their lives to say thank you, thank you, thank you to God and be a different sort of people. While Moses was up there in the mountain, it turned out that the people got a little bit bored. You ever gotten bored? Do you do your best thinking when you're bored? Do you have your best ideas when you're bored? I come up with nonsense when I'm bored, <laughs> which is why I try to stay busy, quite frankly. Here's what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 32. The words are not appearing on the screen. Listen to what the Bible says about the boredom. When the people saw that Moses had gone up on the mountain and was taking so long in listening to the Lord and coming back down, they gathered around Moses' brother Aaron and said this, again in their boredom, Come on, Aaron, make us some gods that we can see who will go before us and lead us and as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. This is a dangerous idea. Have you ever experienced life where maybe God did not show up the way he once did? Maybe you just weren't feeling it for some months, maybe a year, where maybe God seems silent. Maybe you're waiting on God, you keep praying for this thing, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And you're like, well, I've done everything I can do. I'm like, I'm getting bored with this. I've been going to church every Sunday. I've been praying. I, like, I've been doing my devotions. I better try something else, I guess, because God's not going to come through for me. Like, if you've ever found yourself feeling like that, you're in good company. This is how the whole people of God was thinking and feeling. And in their boredom, they said, forget Moses, forget the God who parted the Red Sea. Just give me something I can see, that I can put my hands on. Something that will, I don't know, lead us forward. We're getting sick of hanging out here. Again, this is more than 3,000 years ago. Our modern options are much more different. They took a collection. They got a bunch of gold. And Aaron, the brother of Moses, the man of God, fashioned a golden calf and an altar. And then a party broke out because everybody was so happy. Everybody was like, finally, an answer to our prayers. We're going to carry this thing in front of us. We'll know which way to go. We can't see the invisible God, but we can see this golden calf. Life just got like 50% better. And as Moses is coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments engraved with the words of God by the very finger of God, Moses hears this din of shouting and dancing, and he realizes this isn't the sound of worship and celebration. This is the sound of a rave. Right? Like, this is the sound of a disco. This is the sound of an all-night party. I don't know what kind of music they had, but, like, you could have heard, <clears throat> like, in the background. Israel is going crazy, even as Moses has been with God. 
How do you think God and Moses are going to react to this? Not happy. You know how God feels about idolatry yet? How he feels about people like us cheating on him. Moses goes down and asks his brother Aaron, what are you doing? One of the all-time biblical excuses and responses. Aaron's like, I don't know. Everybody brought the gold. I tossed it in the fire and out came this cow. Seriously, the Bible says that in Exodus chapter 32. Moses grinds up the gold, reduces it to dust, pours it in the water supply. He's like, everybody, you want to worship gold? Drink it. Drink it. See how it is when you take it inside of yourself. It pollutes you. It tastes horrible. It's going to wreck you. You're going to have indigestion. You're going to get sick. This is where idolatry gets you, people. You'd think that this, this occasion would be enough to cure a community of idolatry for life. But here's what happened just a few months Later, Everybody repents. They're like, no, go get another version of the Ten Commandments. We'll read them. We'll follow them. We'll do them. We'll enact them to the letter. But just a little while later, this story from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. God's people are once again not quite to the promised land. They're getting increasingly unhappy. The dietary requirements, uh, they haven't been feeling it lately. So this movement starts. Our food is horrible. When's the last time we've had decent water? Seriously, what is Moses doing? I mean, I know we've had these experiences with God, but don't you think the God of the universe could actually get us like better meals? Better drinks? Did I mention that God hates idolatry? On this occasion, a plague breaks out. They're in a part of the Middle East where all of a sudden there are snakes everywhere. People are getting bitten by these snakes and dying. And all of a sudden, not having the best food and not having the best water doesn't seem like such a big deal when snakes are attacking you. Right? So the people cry out to God and cry out to Moses, Please, 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 won't you rescue us from these snakes? And God tells Moses, this is going to sound a little funny, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a snake out of bronze and lift it up on a pole. And if people will believe that I will heal them and rescue them, all they need to do is lift up their eyes, look at the bronze snake, and they will be rescued. I mean, I think this would take a little bit of trust and surrender if there's snakes everywhere. I mean, just to like not look down on the ground and look up, but this is exactly what God asked them to do. Lift up your eyes from the trouble, from the disaster. Look up at the sign I am giving you. Look up at me. And they're rescued. Won't you think something like that would be enough? Maybe for generations, maybe for hundreds of years to cure people, to keep their vision focused on God. No, 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 it did not. I'm going to read to you. <laughs> so what, does, what are people like us supposed to do? Can we find a cure? Can we find an antidote that works for more than one day or one week or one year? In the history of the kingdom of Judah, 
they had the same problem. And then there came this king named Hezekiah. I'm going to read to you what he did. Again, the words aren't on the screen. Just invite you to hear these words from God's word, 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became the king. Not an old man, not a lifelong veteran. If you're a young adult, maybe you're exactly the person God wants to use. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And then these words about Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. If you know anything about King David, he was not a perfect person. That's not what we're saying is the cure to idolatry is being a perfectly good boy or girl. But it's having the heart of the Lord, the way David had the heart of the Lord. Here's what Hezekiah did. He removed the high places where other gods were worshipped. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles, that's a goddess, and burned them. He even broke into pieces, check this out, the bronze snake that Moses had made all those years ago. For up until that time, the Israelites had been worshiping it and burning incense to it. They gave it the name Nehushtan. Like, isn't this a classic? God does something hundreds of years ago to save his people, make this bronze snake look up to me, and then over the years, God's people turned that very symbol of salvation into an idol itself. So Hezekiah had to wreck it and reduce it to dust and ashes. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, there was no one like him amongst the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands that the Lord had given Moses. And here's the result. So the Lord was with him because the heart of Hezekiah was with the heart of God. Hezekiah was successful in whatever he undertook. So here's the invitation. Let's be a community like Hezekiah. Let's be kids and young adults and men and women like Hezekiah. That whenever we sense something idolatrous rising up within ourselves or a hint of it in our circles or our community, that we would be first in line to want to take it down, tip it over, smash it, burn it. I mean, that kind of demo sounds sort of fun. If you've ever taken a sledgehammer to drywall, I mean, demolition usually seems, is usually kind of like quick and easy. But what the Bible is talking about is not quick and easy. It's difficult because these idolatries maybe are things that we have such affection and dependence and intimacy and simpatico with. So in your worship folder today, um, there's this picture of a golden calf. And here's what we're going to do now. Um, I'm going to invite you to take a pen. And on that picture, to write a word, 
Maybe some initials if you don't want to get too personal or you're worried that like somebody's going to read what you write. Something that represents whatever there is in you that is competing with your soul, allegiance, and affection, and worship for God. In doing this, I'm not pointing out that you're a particularly bad person. We all have something and somethings that does this regularly in our life. Consider yourself in humble company with me and everybody else that you see here. Um, If you need a pen, somebody's coming around. As an act of honesty and prayer before the Lord, I'm going to invite you not only to write that down, um, but to bring it forward and to put it where it belongs, in a trash can. Um, There's going to be a couple in back um, so if you're closer to one of those, there's three on the platform in front of here. And um, after we do this, something even more dramatic is going to happen. Uh, pastor Jeff, Kyle Groters, our youth pastor, are going to take these trash cans. And behind the curtain right now, there is uh, a fire that's going on in a fireplace. And they're going to burn these up one by one or in mass as a way of saying to God through prayer and honesty, God, I want to worship you and I want to worship you alone. Jesus, I want you to be the person for me, not another person, not another thing, not another accomplishment. In the New Testament, it becomes clear that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice that gives freedom to all of us. And in the Gospel of John, it says these words, As Moses raised the serpent up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that the eyes of everyone who beholds him will be saved. I hope that gives you some sense of joy and freedom. You don't get any extra bonus points with God for filling out the paper or bringing it up forward. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about the posture of your spirit that is longing for God and God alone. Doug and the band are going to play while we do this. Invite you just as the spirit leads. Um, so feel free. Come on forward. We make our confession. We offer our prayers. God does everything else.